Hello and welcome to PsychOG. This is a psychology podcast here to coach you through your Cambridge International Psychology 9990AS exams. We're here to bring you all that you need to know for the 12 key studies. I'm Jo and I'm from New Zealand and I've been teaching psychology for a while and we also have... Hi, I'm Carl and I'm from the UK but I'm actually teaching in Nepal. Hi, I'm Leanne. I'm also from the UK and currently teaching in China. And I am your resident American teaching in Spain. Thanks, team. Today we are having a look at Pepperberg, the parrot learning study, which is pretty fantastic. I love learning about Alex. So let me tell you a little bit about the study before we jump in with some of the key ideas that we need to know before we go into the full study. So this study done by Dr. Pepperberg. And one, one of the things I love about this study is that Dr. Pepperberg is a woman and you don't get a lot of that in the science industry. And so it's good to have a lady scientist behind this. So Dr. Pepperberg, she had an African gray parrot named Alex and she was teaching him to do all sorts of things. And there've been many, many research documents about him. But in this case, they were testing whether or not he could look at objects and name what was the same and what was different. So the teaching of the concept of same and different. Okay, so we're going to talk about the social learning theory first. This is the basis of what the study is focused. We're in the learning approach and they are using the idea of the learning theory to test these ideas about parrot learning. So basically the theory focuses on how important observing, modeling, and imitating behaviors, attitudes, and emotional reactions of others can be. So it supports classical conditioning and operant conditioning. And then Bandura came along and he supported those ideas and wanted to add a little bit more, saying that we learn behavior from our environment, nature versus nurture, nurture, nurture. And through observation, that behavior is guided by the processes that occur between stimuli and responses. So basically we have individuals in our lives, models, and children or parrots in this case are influenced by these models. So let's use the example of children. Their parents are models. TV characters like cartoon characters could be models. Friends, you know, within their classroom or within their cohort are, are models. Their teachers are also models. And based on the observations that children make and the interpretations of those behaviors, they're going to imitate or not imitate. So if they see a child scolded for behaving a certain way, they're probably less likely to imitate that behavior. And if they see that another child is chided and, and encouraged to act that way, then they're probably very likely to imitate that behavior. So specifically, if the model of their same gender, and this is a little sneak peek, spoiler alert for uh, Bandura's study on aggression, but if the model of their same gender performs the behavior, then they're more likely to imitate it as well. And then if a child imitates the behavior and receives a reward and the child themselves receives the award, then they're more likely to repeat that behavior or imitate that behavior again. And if the child receives a punishment for imitating the model's behavior, then they are not likely to repeat it. Then we also need to talk about the model rival technique that Pepperberg uses. And I think that my students are probably going to find it very charming how Joe says uh, Pepperberg in her New Zealand accent, by the way. The model rival technique, Pepperberg makes reference to a few people who have examined this technique 
in her study, she refers to Todd, I assume that's how it's pronounced, T-O-D-T, 1975, Maurer, which sounds like a cat meowing, 1960, and Bandura, 1971, okay? So you can see that she references these. If you really want to get deep into it, you can read it and look it up on the internet. However, basically what it is is that there are two trainers and one gives the instructions about what the subject has to do and the other will model the correct and incorrect responses. The second instructor will act as a rival for the trainer's attention. So the model and the trainer also exchange roles that the student sees that the process is fully interactive. So let's say I'm training a dog. I'm going to have two people trying to train the dog. One person is going to give the instruction and they're going to say, sit Fido, good boy. And then you give him a little treat or whatever, and you get very excited and it's like, oh, yay. So the, the behavior is rewarded. And then it shows the dog that that's how you need to behave. And then the dog will imitate that behavior. And then with the case of Alex, we're going to see that he is going to hold on to, as part of the reward, he gets to hold on to the objects in his beak as part of the reward and sort of discover and explore them a little bit. And that's part of his reward. And when the person, the trainer does this, they have to sort of act like a parrot does and sort of hold it and rub it on their face and things like that to make it look like you know, that's what a parrot would do. So we're going to get into a little bit more of the details of that later, but it's the idea that there are the two trainers, one is modeling the behavior, but then also it makes the animal or the person being trained want to jump in and say, oh, I can do that correctly. I know how to do that correctly. You know, doing it as if it were a dog, dogs get excited about everything. It's like, oh, I want to sit. I want to get the treat. So yeah, that's the model rival technique. Operant conditioning. So Jamie alluded to this before, and it's an important part of the study as well. So in addition to the social learning theory, watching the model and the rival demonstrating the different things that we're wanting the parrot to learn, or the dog or the child or the whoever, operant conditioning is also an important part of this. And operant conditioning is a way to shape behaviors through the use of rewards and punishments. It is built on the concept of classical conditioning, which is where things are learned through association. And it often relies on natural reactions like dog salivation. So you may have heard of Pavlov and his dogs and how he conditioned the dogs to salivate at the sound of a bell, amongst other things. If you go into the study, he did it a lot with all sorts of different sounds and stuff. But the classic one is the bell and the salivation. But it starts, of course, with actual food and the salivation itself. And then they pair it with the bell. Operant conditioning kind of builds on that but it's talking about rewards and punishments as ways to shape that behavior. And particularly rewards and punishments can be used in ways that classical conditioning cannot because we can shape beyond just the natural reactions that we have in regular situations. When it comes to our rewards and punishments, they can be both positive and negative, but don't interpret that as just good or bad. Positive doesn't necessarily mean good and negative doesn't necessarily mean bad. It's all about adding to positive or taking away negative. So some examples, positive reward could be chocolate being given to you, presuming that you like chocolate. A negative reward might be a car stopping beeping when you put your seatbelt on because it's taking away the annoying sound and it's a reward for you doing the right behavior, seatbelt. Positive punishment, on the other hand, might be something like the cane, not uh, legal in many countries, particularly my own, but that kind of thing. And negative punishment might be something like, well, you get no food for dinner tonight because you didn't eat your vegetables at lunchtime. So there's taking away something as a result. And through that, hopefully you then do the right behavior in that case, eating your vegetables. 
Maybe I should throw in about B.F. Skinner that actually used avian subjects, birds and pigeons, to investigate operant conditioning. He built what was called a Skinner box, which was a box that they put the pigeons in. that had a little lever that the pigeons would peck. And when they pecked it in response to, say, a light coming on, then they would get a pellet of food, which would reinforce the behaviour of the bird. An extra side to this is that he actually saw that pigeons would develop other behaviours. Like, so if the pigeon turned to the right before it pecked, it would actually get reinforced doing that turn as well as the pecking. And they would develop what he called superstitions, where they would actually have a sequence of little dances before they pecked the bar and got the food. And this was just like a random thing that appeared quite interesting how it worked. He did a lot of work on operant conditioning and how, how you were reinforced, actually, how the reward was delivered changed how much you were reinforced as well. Quite a fascinating thing if you're interested in operant conditioning at a deeper level. I always love using uh, the example of Big Bang Theory when Sheldon gives Penny chocolates whenever she does the behavior that he approves of. They're watching a film and she gets a phone call and she stays on the couch, the sofa, and she looks over at Sheldon and says, oh, I'm going to go out in the hallway. And he says, do you want a chocolate? I always show that video because it's a really good example and it sort of helps students make it stick in their minds. So if you want to pause the podcast for a moment, go look on YouTube for that video. Operant conditioning, Big Bang Theory. I'm sure it'll come up as Penny and Sheldon. Great example. Yeah, I, I love that one too. I, I think, isn't there a part of it where it, she, he, he actually starts squirting people with water as well? I'm not sure about that one. But... Maybe, maybe that's a spoiler alert. There's a couple of versions of the clip, so make sure you get the longer one. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me one bit. <laughs> I think the other thing when we talk about conditioning is as teachers, you know, we're talking to you about how we condition. We use a lot of these techniques in the classroom. So, you know, particularly when students are younger. So you might recognize some of the strategies now that you're learning more about the conditioning. You might think, hang on a minute, my teacher did that to me when I was in grade eight. You're giving away our secrets. Be quiet. Sorry. Are we allowed to squirt your 13 students with water or is that? No. Well, it's questionable the ethics of giving them chocolate for doing a a good essay as well, I think, really. I'm not giving my chocolate away to anyone. <laughs> Me neither. Yeah, we'll talk about issues of ethics a little bit later. Maybe I can talk a little bit about the background of the study and um, some of the other pieces of research that have been done into animal cognition and animal learning of different things. So there had actually been some previous success training pigeons with same different concept learning. But most of the success that they've had before with training this kind of concept about is that same or different tends to have come with monkeys, with non-human primates. And the significant difference between training pigeons and training monkeys is that the monkeys would actually have some sort of transfer of the learning to new objects. So they could train the monkeys on same different with with the certain objects and they'd actually then use that concept with new objects pigeons weren't so good at that humans are pretty good at it usually other birds that have been used have been there's a, a few different species starlings are actually quite good at this with ascending and descending tones in bird song and also cowbirds which I don't think look like big cows with wings, by the way. And um, 
mockingbirds. So starlings, cowbirds and mockingbirds can actually show some classification of similarity or difference with ascending and descending bird song tones, which is actually a, a real advantage to them in terms of reproductive success because they can actually recognize each other and mates and so on, um, which would really help. But it tended to only be in pre-trained stimuli most of the stuff. And there's a there tended to be a lack of extension to like new frequency ranges. So there are some limitations there. So, you know, with this in mind, Pepperberg really wanted to see if, if parrots, there's a term for birds avian, you know, we keep birds in an aviary, an avian subject is a bird that participates in a, a study. And the aim was to see if an avian subject could use vocal labels to demonstrate symbolic comprehension of the concepts of same and different. Now, when we say symbolic comprehension, that means we can actually have this symbolization of the, the concept in the mind of the animal, and it can actually then reapply it in a different situation. I mean, another way of saying the aim is, the aim was to see if you could train a parrot to tell if two objects are the same color, shape, or made of the same material, or are different from one another. So that's a simpler way of saying it. The other thing that probably related to the aim that we should talk about is um, hypotheses and the whole nature of hypotheses in Pepperberg's study, because Pepperberg didn't actually explicitly state any hypotheses in this study. But we could assume that a hypothesis could be that there will be a difference in how Alex will respond to novel objects compared to familiar objects. So the independent variable there would be the familiarity of the object pairs and the dependent variable would be the performance. But that's not explicitly stated in the study. It's just something that we could surmise from that. I also wanted to respond on the issue of gender in this study. Alex is actually a male parrot. Pepperberg's female and Alex is male. And maybe I should actually say what Alex stands for. Does anybody else know what Alex stands for? Alex actually stands for Avian Linguistic Experiment, I think. It might be Avian Learning Experiment. It's one of those two. That will help you actually remember the whole concept of avian learning. Man, that's amazing. Oh, wow. I don't think I've heard that. And from what I can tell, all the rest of us are like mind blown emoji. Like, like what? We just thought he was called Alex because Alex is a cool name. Even cooler now. Yep. <laughs> Definitely much cooler. I mean, I mean, Alex is a pretty cool parrot to start with. So let alone knowing that extra information now. So my mind yet yeah, is definitely blown by that. So thank you, Carl. We all learn something new every day. Anyway, so let's think a bit more. We've talked about what Alex can do. but We need to know a little bit more about if you like, who Alex is as our subject of our study here. So Alex, as we said many times, is a parrot. He's specifically an African grey parrot. And it's a species of bird that's quite well known for levels of intelligence. And Alex has actually been involved in psychology for a very long time before this experiment. He'd actually worked with Pepperberg for coming up for 10 years by the time of this experiment. So since 1977, and the date of this experiment is 1987. Now, obviously, when we think about Alex, we all like Alex. He's one of my favourite animal studies to read. So we want to be concerned with what's, what's life like for Alex during this experiment. Okay, and we'll come back to some of this when we look at the ethics, but just to give you a general picture of what the sort of context is for this study. So Alex, during the daytime, so when the lab was open and working, he had a pretty nice and easy life. He could go anywhere 
in the lab, he could ask to go to places. So if he was bored with where he was, he could just say to one of the trainers, I want to go to the gym. And they take him there and he could do what he wanted there. Um, during his sleeping hours, he had a nice, good sized cage and he had food and water available all the time. So pretty well looked after. And as well as having his basic parrot food during the daytime, he could also ask for like extra treats. So he could say if he wanted some fresh fruit, I want banana and somebody would give him some banana. Um, if he wanted some nuts, if he wanted some toys to play with, he could just ask for it. So I think that's a life we kind of all quite like, actually, just sort of chilling out. And if we want something to eat, someone gives it to us. I mean, I'd be happy with that. Obviously, he did have to do a bit of work to earn all that. But, you know, I'd be happy. It's also to think about, as I said, he's been involved in psychology studies for close to 10 years. So we need to think about what Alex already knows how to do before we look at what he's asked to do in this experiment. OK, so Alex already had a pretty large vocabulary, but from the previous research, so he could actually name five different colours. So he could name red, green, yellow, blue and grey. Okay. He could name um, different materials. We could name paper, wood, rawhide, which is, I guess, a type of leather is the best way to describe that, and cork. So he knew the names of those objects and could confidently name and identify them. He was also pretty good with shapes. He could name two, three, four, and five-sided shapes. So things like pentagons, triangles, squares. He could name them by the number of corners in that object, or the number of edges, I guess is a better way of saying it. And he also had the ability to count up to six. Okay, so pretty impressive for a bird. He also could answer some straightforward questions already. So if you ask what colour or what shape, he could identify those, or what, um, I believe the question was, what matter? to name wood or cork or paper. And why is that important in the study? Well, when we come to the idea of investigating same difference, Alex wasn't really being asked to choose between two things. He had to really go through all the multitude of things he knew how to say or identify and select the correct response. So he might be thinking about colour and shape and matter and same and difference. So we're really looking at the cognitive ability of this bird. Can this bird think and extract the language in the same way that a human can? So quite an impressive bird, really. One thing I really like about Alex was that uh, some days he didn't feel like working. And in that, I am definitely jealous of Alex because they could tell he was in a mood and they were like, oh, OK, he's not in, in the mood to work today. So we'll just let him be for now. I am so jealous of Alex's work schedule. <laughs> um, the other thing I wanted to mention was also that because as you can imagine, his vocal, I don't know if you would call them vocal cords, but his vocal ability for enunciating words wasn't spectacular either. So if he said, when talking about matter, meaning what the objects were made of, he would say mama. He wasn't referring to like Pepperberg as his mommy or anything like that. He was referring to what the objects were made of. And so one thing I also wanted to mention about rawhide, uh, if you've ever had I don't have dogs. I keep talking about dogs, but if you've ever had dogs in the past, those like bones that you get that are probably actually really bad for them from the pet shops, they are rawhide. So they're those really hard white-ish creamish colored things. So if, if you know what I'm talking about, that's sort of the idea of what rawhide is uh, like. It's very hard. Uh, it has to be very moist in order to bend or move or anything. That's what rawhide is. Okay. Yeah. Kind of the things that they make some of those chew toys out of isn't it talking of that when, i mean when you buy those chew toys you buy them in a pet shop and actually alex was bought from a pet shop originally before he was involved in this study maybe i can say a little bit about the type of study that we're talking about here of course as we're only talking about 
one participant in this study, we're talking about a case study of Alex and of Alex's ability to learn and distinguish between objects, as well as Alex's ability to learn how to vocalize and associate different vocalizations or different utterances and, and noises with particular characteristics and qualities of objects. So this is a case study, but within the case study, there's actually experiments that are used to investigate these particular abilities of Alex. And within the experiment, again, because we've only got one participant, by necessity, the experimental design is repeated measures because there's no other participant to test. So, of course, it's going to be repeated measures. You can always remember that it's always going to be repeated measures if you've got some sort of experiment within a case study. That's something that's interesting and good to think about also for your paper too. If you are asked to write a study that is a case study, you need to tell them specifically what type of case study you're going to do because it could just be an observation. It could be an experiment. It could be a bunch of self-reports through questionnaires and interviews. So a case study can be many things and you need to choose what that's going to be. In this case, they've chosen it to be an experiment. Um, when we talk about the button boy later, which is a different case study, uh, like they used a bit of interview, finding out about stuff from him, but then also a level of experiment as well. So it is good to remember that if you get a question on case study in your paper too, you've got to be quite specific about how you're going to do that case study. Okay, so a little bit about the task itself. Pretty basic, and, and I won't labor over this. Alex was presented with two objects, and they could be almost anything. And we'll talk about specifically what they were at the different levels and different stages as we go through the procedure. But just to give an overview, presented with two things, and he was asked one of two questions. What's same or what's different? And um, when it came to those two objects, generally they would differ on one category. So there were three different categories. They were looking at color, shape, or material, or as he would say, mama. And they would be asked what's same. So if you had in front of you, say, a yellow triangle made of wood and a blue triangle made of wood, if you said what's different, the right answer would be color, not yellow and not blue. And that was something that they really needed to train Alex on is to say the category not the color itself or not what the material was, whether it was wool or wood or whatever. By the way, one of my favorite things about Alex is the way he says wool. And I might try and get some of that audio and splice it in there because it's very, very cute. Alex, what matter? Wool. That's right. And so because of the fact that Alex had quite a wide vocabulary, it wasn't necessarily that Alex had only three choices. So they did, when they looked statistically, they presumed that he basically had three choices, color, shape, or material. However, he had all those other words, and he was also asked a lot of other questions while he was being tested on like numerical concepts and color concepts and all sorts of other things, while also being tested on what's same and what's different. And so really, it got a bit beyond just those three things. That was really important that he would give a category label rather than the specific object or attribute label. Particularly, this was important when he was talking about novel objects, things that he hadn't seen before. We, he didn't have labels for a specific object. Yeah, he was also um, 
trained and tested at the same time on a couple of other things as well, like photograph recognition and awareness of object permanence as well. So there was quite a lot going on. He was quite a, a rigorous training, but over a long period of time. I think some of that mix up of the training was obviously to stop him getting bored. You know, he's a very intelligent creature. So doing the same thing over and over, you know, we can all say the same. If you're doing the same thing, you get bored, you don't pay attention, you're not going to learn. And the key part of this training procedure is he's learning. So if he's bored, you know, so adding in all the different types builds that variety into the day for him. It's a bit like our students training lots of different subjects at the same time. I bet they would say that they get bored equally, though. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Shall we move on to the training procedure? So the training procedure uses the model rival approach, which we already mentioned a little bit. Um, So just to recap, one human acts as the trainer of the second human by presenting objects and asking questions about them and giving praise and reward for the correct answers and then showing disapproval of incorrect answers. And whenever I read the study with students, the fact that they, I guess that's not the training procedure, but when they do the, the testing procedure and they're like, no, I'm like, oh, poor Alex, he's going to be so sad that they said no so strongly. Anyway. But the training procedure is they are presenting objects, asking questions about them, giving praise when he gets them correct or when the other trainer gets them correct. And the second human acts both as model for the bird's responses and as a rival for the trainer's attention. So he'll butt in and try to say, oh, I know that one. And he'll say what is same or what is different. And these roles are going to be reversed. And the parrot will be given the opportunity to participate in these vocal exchanges. So he's trying to compete for the attention of the trainer. And a lot of times the trainers will switch and they'll jump in and and he'll say, they'll sort of probably go slow, I imagine, so that he has an opportunity. This was to practice the objects and what kinds of objects they were, uh, how many sides they had and things like that. During the training, the actual reward was actually receiving the object, wasn't it? So he could actually manipulate it. I think we talked about that earlier. And when they did the wrong object, they actually removed the object from view and there was kind of like a timeout. And this was for both the human and the rival and for Alex. So the human rival would actually model incorrect behavior as well as correct behavior. This is one of my fun things is that they actually did say the no as well with the trainers back and forth just to emphasize the fact. And it's one of my favorite things to do in class and to say the very loud and emphatic no, take it away. (laughs) Hold for a moment. Bring it back. Same question. And the same question was presented until the right answer was given. So even the um, the two trainers back and forth, they would occasionally get it wrong on purpose to show Alex this is what happens when you get it wrong. And then also to train the right things for eventually getting it right. And then also for getting it right, they got the things as well. And I'm sure like as soon as you said that earlier, Jamie, like the whole rubbing it against your face and things, I'm like, of course, that's what Alex would do. And if he saw the trainers do that, he'd be like, oh, I can do that too. That would be really nice. That's a material I am not familiar with it and I want to touch it. And that seems like a fun thing to do. So that makes sense to me anyway. I think the model rival always reminds me of if you've got a sort of small group of ch- young children in front of you and you're talking and interacting with one child and you're having a fun time, the other children all want to get involved. They don't like it, that they're not the ones getting the attention. And I always think of Alex as that little child on the outside that really wants the attention and is not going to get it. I can do it. I can do it. 
oh ooh, ooh, hang on I'm not going to do that when the sort of the punishment or the scolding so it just makes me ultimately think of a little child I just wanted to highlight something here that's quite interesting with this study is the tendency to anthropomorphize and I think that it was quite interesting that some of the ways we've been talking about Alex and kind of putting on Alex very human traits and human thoughts and ways of thinking that might not actually be there. And I think when you study this paper, one of the things you should kind of watch out of, try and notice when you anthropomorphize, when you do this kind of like projection of human ways of being onto the subject. It's quite interesting how we do it. One of the best examples of anthropomorphizing going wrong is when people say that dolphins are happy because they're smiling. You know, that's probably the best example of where that can go wrong. Okay, so we've sort of heard a bit about the general training procedure and the model rival, but one of the other things you might be asked about is more specifically, how was the same different training carried out? So there's a bit of an overlap with some of the things you've already heard here, but just think about it specifically. And I always find it easiest to break it down into almost stages or steps. And it's quite a useful tip for studying if you want to learn this. So you can think of the number of things you need to remember to write about if you've got a question saying something like describe the same different training procedure so that's just a tip from me that I find helpful you may have your own ways of doing that so when Alex was going through the same different training it was obviously using the model rival technique so Alex is watching the trainer and the model slash rival so the first thing that's happened is the two objects are held up and one of two questions is asked either what's same or what's different and then obviously the person would answer with the quality or the aspect that is the same. So that could be colour, material or shape. So nice and straightforward. Okay, it's important to note that these these training sessions did mix things up. So sometimes the question was same, sometimes different. The object pairings were really varied around. Because obviously what we don't want is learning an order or a sequence of something. So if we keep the order random, we know that we're actually observing or testing, if you like, the aim we're actually trying to focus on in this study, that can Alex recognise the abstract concept of same, different? Not can he learn the order that, ah, the first answer is same, the second answer is colour, third answer is shape, etc., etc. The training sessions did only use items Alex was familiar with. Now, later on in the actual experiment, you'll hear that novel objects or new objects that he was less familiar with were used. But for the training sessions, it was specifically the things he already knew. Now, as we've heard, the model would respond if the answer was correct, the model would be rewarded. And we've already talked about the model being given the object to play with and stroke on their face. But it's worth noting as well that the model or Alex could ask for their own reward. So if for a reward they wanted some fruit or they wanted a particular toy, if that's what they asked for, that would be the reward. It was mainly the object, but that was not the only thing that Alex could have as a reward for the correct answer. Okay, And again, if the answer was wrong, as Carl said earlier, there was a scolding, there was a no, the objects were taken away. And remember, Alex is interested in these objects. He likes to touch and feel these things. So taking them away is the punishment. Have the time out, bring it back, try again. And then if you get the correct answer this time, you get the reward. And also worth noting is that the model rival and trainer roles were switched around as well. So sometimes the um, human in the room was a model rival. Sometimes they were the trainer. And again, just to keep that randomness there. So Alex is really focusing the training on what we want him to know for the purpose of our experiment. I have seen questions come up in the past that have addressed and asked, well, what was he trained on? And they do actually mention this, that the objects were red, green or blue, triangle or square or rawhide or wood. 
that was all he was trained on, just that very limited subset. Of course, they were able to mix and match many of those things backwards and forwards to make sure they had enough training sets to present to Alex. And so that was really important. Also, initially, they only trained him in terms of color and shape differences and same things because those were words that he already knew, or at least he knew in the context of the question, what color or what shape. And so it was also drawing out him being able to use the word color and shape separately as opposed to that phrase, what color or what shape. And once he got the whole idea of being able to say color and shape separately, then they started training on the mama matter category so that then he could later use that in questions once that was becoming all right. And I see here, these training sessions happen two to four times a week. Again, that's specific stuff that they often like to ask for in the exam. And training sessions, it lasted anywhere from five minutes to an hour. And like Jamie said, that would be a fantastic way to do it. That if they were bored, if you're bored after five minutes of doing something, you basically go, I, I don't want to do something, do this anymore and leave. I'm done with work today. Don't want to train about this anymore. And so, yeah, just the five minutes to an hour. So this was all just the training procedure. So before the testing actually happened, there was specific criteria that needed to be met by Alex. The main thing that they were focusing on as the criterion prior to testing was actually his ability to produce the word mama or matter. That was really, really important. And that was based on his clarity of speech, the production, rather than his comprehension. So they didn't wait until it seemed like he knew what same and different concepts were. It wasn't until he seemed to be pretty good at these questions. It was until he could actually produce the term mama. And there is a note down the bottom in the good old footnotes. Always good to check those because there's some useful information there. And that this was deemed possible when the vocalization could be recognized auditorially as that label by all of the trainers. So everybody had to agree with an inter-observer agreement greater than 90% that what he was saying actually was what everybody else thought he was saying. That when he said mama, it was pretty darn clear that that is indeed what he was saying. And the reason why they did that was to make sure that he could answer the questions appropriately. And what they'd found in the past is that most of the time he seemed to understand the concepts first before he could vocalize. Um, it was very rare for him to vocalize something before he seemed to have understood what it was. So they worked with that and went, okay, we'll wait till he can produce the label mama because he could do okay with color and shape already. And once the trainers were all agreed that that is what he was saying, then they were like, right, good to go with the testing procedures. With regards to the testing procedures, there's a couple of things about them that are kind of important and worth considering. And I'm going to list them and I want you to think a little bit about what might be the reasons behind this. I mean, why did they design things this way? Why did they put these measures in place? So first of all, the testing was performed by secondary trainers and they'd never trained Alex on same different. They might have trained Alex on other things, but they never trained Alex on same different. So think about why that might be. The other thing was testing was interleaved with training on numerical concepts. So Alex didn't get tested on same different in like a block. It was actually interleaved with other training. And also the tester chose tests based on a list of possible objects and questions. So there was a big list of different things that they could use and they chose them from that. So if you think about that for a minute, what do you think? Why was why were secondary trainers involved? It's got to be to stop 
experimental coaching or coercing. There was the old story of the horse who could do math and it was done with the trainer and he would like stamp however many the right answer was. But there was like cues given by um, the trainer to basically tell him to stop stamping now when he got to the right number. And so it was all just a bit of a fuss. And so by using secondary trainers, it would stop that cueing so that it was actually, in this case, Alex proving that he knew this stuff rather than Dr. Pepperberg pulling your ear going, it means this means matter and like pointing at her nose, this means color and sticking your tongue out, that means shape or whatever it is. But that, yes, it was really him doing it himself. I think I think, yeah, I would agree totally that it is to avoid that sort of experiment of cueing. But I think you were talking about quite conscious cueing there, the touching something deliberately to indicate the answer. But that cueing could also be almost subconscious. You know, this is Pepperberg's study. This is the parrot that she's worked with. There's going to be the element that she wants the answers to be correct. So there may even be a subconscious body movement or reaction when Alex gives the correct or incorrect answer that Alex will recognise or a certain movement. You know, it doesn't always have to be, if you like, that deliberate, almost... I guess, cheating form of cueing. But yeah, I can't remember if we said this or not. Pepe almost just sat in a corner facing away, didn't she? So that even she couldn't see what the correct answer was, which I love the idea of the experiment of sitting in the corner like a naughty child. Yeah, excellent. Spot on. How about the second thing? Testing was interleaved with training on numerical concepts. And I think someone alluded to this somewhere else earlier in this discussion. I think that was Leanne talking about boredom. Yeah. I did yeah, I did yeah. speak something about boredom earlier on, yeah. All about boredom and making sure that, and also to do with expectancy as well, you know, to see if Alex could kind of like switch between different modes of thinking as well and not just be dealing with questions about same and different. Just a note on the boredom thing. There is actually no solid evidence in the study that Alex was ever bored. Um, I've read this in Mark Schemes and Examiner reports many times that when people talk about ethics and thinking negatively that Alex was bored. No, he wasn't. We've got no evidence of that. However, they made sure the testing procedures and the training procedures were done in such a way so that he wouldn't be bored. But as far as we know, he was fully entertained, very happy, and he wasn't bored. Yeah, it was interesting in the training procedure because he occasionally would actually try to refuse objects because he didn't like them at that time, which was quite funny. And But they would actually persist quite a lot with that as well, but not too much to make him stress. The last one was the tester chose the test based on a list of possible objects and questions. Anyone got any ideas why that might be? One other thing just to add in that I remember is that even the list of objects and the list of different peers matched up and with the correct answers to the side there, somebody else did that who wasn't even involved with the study at all. So it was another, another student. So not only do we have a person to doing the testing who never trained him on this concept, but somebody else even made up the things. So nobody knows what's coming, especially Dr. Pepperberg sitting in the corner who is repeating what Alex is saying, just in case the trainer didn't quite hear what he said. So Alex would say like, shape or whatever and Pepperberg in the corner is like shape to make sure that there was some agreement on what uh, he said yeah great wonderful the other thing that they did was they did the test on same and different one to four times per week it wasn't intensive it was actually spaced out within training of other things so and also 
the trainer and Alex couldn't predict which questions on which topic would appear on a given day. So that's that other thing to do with expectancy. Something that I think sometimes isn't quite so apparent with both the training and the testing is the sheer amount of time that this took. And testing on same and different actually occurred between February 1984 and April 1986. So it was a really long period of time. And, you know, the training of Alex, including the pre-training where Alex learned a lot of colours and so on, that was a long period of time before that Alex had been training this stuff. So there's quite a different perspective when you think of it like that. It's like usually when we talk about testing and experiments, we think about them over a short period of time, but this was actually a very long period of time. More on the testing procedures. The principal trainer was present. I think, Joe, you mentioned this. The principal trainer was present during testing and had her back to the training and didn't look at Alex was in the corner of the room and repeated out loud what Alex said. There's a distinction here between the types of response as well here that Alex could have made. There's what was called the first trial response. And it's whatever Alex said the first time that's taken as the response. There was no repetition of that same object during the test. Errors were responded to by the tester removing the object, turning their head and giving a timeout. This emphatic no, repeating the test until the correct identification was made. And so that Alex learned that incorrect identification was actually fruitless. Testing was very different to training. There was no exclusive testing on same different. So this expectation queuing was removed. There was only repetition if Alex made an error. And if you look at the tests, there's kind of two different types of tests as well. There's tests on familiar objects where the object pairs are similar, but not identical to those that were in training, but they were familiar objects. Um, this kind of removed fear of unfamiliar examples and always different pairings. If they use familiar objects, they always kind of pair them differently than they had them in training. Okay, so talking about the tests on familiar objects, as uh, we've talked about before, um, just to make it very clear, the tests on familiar objects were anything that would be red, green, or blue, anything that would be a triangle or square, and anything that was rawhide or wood. Those were the things that he basically knew. So I'm imagining, you know, a few maybe flat uh, wooden pieces that might be like children's toys or something like that. And it would be something that he could pick up with his beak uh, with very little problem. And he was able to identify those things. He was very familiar with them from the training and he had no problem with these kinds of objects. He could know how many sides things had, how many corners they had. So as we also mentioned, it was up to five. So he could say that something had five corners or he could say, that it was red or green or blue, et cetera. However, during the trials with the test, there were novel objects. So if you are curious about some of those objects, the list is very long. It's in the appendix of the paper, but I'm going to mention some of those objects. One of those things was keys. The matter might be paper or made of wool woolen. There was also a paperclip, a plastic barrel. So I imagine like a barrel of monkeys, like one of those little few inches tall kind of, you know, toy barrel 
things. There was a screw pom-poms. They introduced some new colors that they knew that he might not be able to describe because he wasn't familiar with them. So pink was one of the colors. White. He would have seen white before, obviously, but in the training, he was prepared for only three colors, but with these novel objects, he didn't know how to say pink or identify that it was pink. He just knew it was different. Then there was a hair clip, a truck, and I assume the truck was novel. The appendix does not mention whether they were novel, but if you know that the familiar objects were red, green, and blue, triangular or square, rawhide or wood, then anything else that is not any of those things that you would be able to deduce that they were novel objects. So like I mentioned, anything that was metallic, so like the key, the screw, if it was pink or white or maybe purple or turquoise or new colors, those were all novel objects. Just a note about the keys. They're actually listed in as part of the test on familiar objects. So started with those initial things with an additional color. So there was four colors in the familiar objects. So they don't tell us what the additional color is that I can see, which is annoying. But later they said variously shaped keys were also part of familiar objects. I'm going to go ahead and move on to probes trials. Probes were done to determine whether he was processing the content of the questions he was being asked. So we know that almost every day he's being asked all these kinds of questions about different objects. And um, we mentioned about the horse foot stomping and the trainer telling him when to stop stomping his foot and things like that. So what they're trying to make sure that they demonstrate is that this parrot isn't being trained or cued or anything like that. They're trying to make sure that he is processing the questions, that he is understanding what is being asked, and that he is also being understood when responding. Okay. So this was done to try to rule out the possibility that Alex was replying to the questions mechanically. So just saying, oh, blah, 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 you know, as if he were some kind of robot that has been trained on the same exact questions over and over and over. He was asked, we've talked about this a number of times. So he was asked different questions on a random basis. So whether it was, you know, what color or what's same or what's different when he was shown to objects, he was rewarded if it was correct as usual with the probes. And the probes also demonstrated that Alex was definitely processing the questions and responding to the physical properties of the objects. And in this particular set of trials, he got a 90%, 90.2% correct on all of the trials. So he was processing the questions. He was understanding. He wasn't just responding like, you know, because he was getting randomly different questions and he was almost always correct. Okay, I guess we're onto the results. So sorted all the procedure with all the different types of training and all the different types of actual trials. We'll start with some of the training results because I think these are quite interesting. It's also part of the research. So firstly, in terms of the training to acquire the label color and shape as separately from the questions, what color and what shape. This took about four months of training. It's pretty impressive. In terms of MAMA, the new vocalization, the novel vocalization, it took nine months. Bearing in mind, remember, they were only training him one to four times a week and for various lengths of time. So it took him about nine months to be able to produce that vocalization, MAMA. And particularly because the M sound, that M, was pretty new to him, I think, and getting that around his beak would have been pretty impressive. So that took nine months. They weren't actually too worried necessarily that it took so long because... Yeah, like I said before, it 
reflects the fact that he was being tested and trained on various other things and also because they were trying to prevent the boredom so they just wanted to slow down on that and it was a novel phenom. If you think about it a parrot doesn't have any lips so doing a mmm it's going to be pretty difficult. Also the length of time it took is all about how willing he was to attend to the training itself and he was pretty chill about it and only wanted to train whenever he wanted to train. One other thing that's interesting about this is yeah sure they started testing after they were pretty darn sure he was saying mama correctly. They do mention though that it is indeed possible that Alex had already begun to acquire that same different concept before he could say the right category label. Because in the initial stages of training, he would often give the label of the particular instance of the category that was the same. For example, said yellow as opposed to color or one of the two that was different, like three corner as opposed to shape. So it did seem like he was getting on the right track. He just didn't have quite the right labels yet. So they were right to wait until he could actually produce the labels themselves. That's the results from the training. It's kind of time to look at the results from the actual study itself. And we can break them down into three distinct areas. The results from the familiar objects, the results from the novel objects, and the results from the probes trials. So one of the key things to get your head around here is the way they classified the responses. And you'll see written a lot, first trial responses. The language might be a bit complicated, but it simply means first trial means that Alex gave the correct answer straight away. It was the first vocalization, the first sound he made. So making sure he got that very first answer. Now, if he said the wrong answer, you know, if the answer was shape and he said matter or mama, that would be a wrong answer. However, if he said something like, I want a banana, that would be not a first trial response, but it wouldn't be categorized as an incorrect response. It's important to understand the distinction between an incorrect response and a response that just wasn't classed as a first trial response. So that sometimes can be a bit confusing. So if we look at the familiar objects, if we start with the correct overall responses, so this is a response where maybe he didn't get it right first time, but did maybe second or third time. So we can say out of 129 trials, Alex was correct 99 times. That works out at 76 0.6% rounded up to 77% in your course book. And then if we just look at first trial responses for familiar objects, we're looking at 69 out of 99. Okay, so 69.7%. Now those results seem quite low, but if you also factor in a chance response here, remember he's got basically a one in three chance of getting it right. So if he was just guessing, we'd expect those numbers to be near a sort of the 33.33333 whatever response. So they are significantly higher than the chance response. So he is able to identify those differences or what's same, what's different. There's one other set of results in this familiar object. And last time I taught this, my students picked up on it as well. And it's tucked in in the second paragraph on tests on familiar objects. Yeah, previously novel yeah. objects. And so he got for all trials, 13 out of 17, so rounding up to 77%, and 10 out of 13, again, rounding up 77% for first trials. Yeah, it's those things that maybe he's seen once or twice before, but they're no longer novel to him. Remember, novel means new. He's never seen them before. So maybe once he's seen them, they're maybe not as familiar as his triangles or squares and yellow and blue that he's used to seeing, but they're no longer novel. So thanks for adding that in. Okay, so moving on to the results for novel objects. Um, we might expect these results actually to be lower than familiar objects because obviously Alex has never seen these before. What we actually find are his scores are better. So if we look at all trials first, 96 out of 113 trials, he scored correctly. So that's 85% overall. 
And on first trial responses, 79 out of 96, so 82%. Okay, so when we stop and think a little bit about it, it actually becomes quite clear why Alex's scores were better. He's a curious parrot. He likes new things. He wants to touch these objects and see what they are. And he knows from his training, if he gets the answer correct, he gets to play with these things as a reward. And this was also Pepperberg's rationale for why Alex scored higher. He, he was just simply paying a bit more attention, attention, sorry, and had a bigger incentive to get the answers correct. Okay, and then lastly, the probes trial, which as um, Jamie said earlier, was really about checking that Alex is processing the questions. He's not just sort of picking more randomly. Okay, so when we look at all trials, 55 out of 61 trials, he was correct. That's a percentage rate of 90%, just over. And on first trial responses, 49 out of 55, so 89.1%. Again, significantly above a chance score. And therefore, we can argue that, no, Alex is processing the questions, not just looking at the objects. So really sort of supporting Pepperberg's aim. No, on the probes questions, the chance score for these ones compared to the other ones, because there are two possible answers, is 66.6%. And so the fact that his scores were a bit higher than the other ones, so he's floating around 70, 80%. These ones are closer to 90, which still is that significant difference between the chance score of uh, 67-ish percent. And as you said, uh, the results supported the aim. You know, we get talked about the aim earlier. Um, the real the conclusion of this research is that yeah an avian subject a parrot can use vocal labels can make those sounds of those words to demonstrate that they comprehend they understand they have symbolic comprehension of the concepts of same and different you can see that in the transfer trials also an avian subject can use vocal labels to demonstrate symbolic comprehension of the concepts of same and different. That's the first conclusion. And the second one related to that is an avian subject can also learn to respond to verbal questions to vocalize categorical labels as well. So there's two discoveries here that they kind of came up with. And I mean, again, they say an avian subject. So Alex, in this case, we're talking about a case study, we're talking about one animal, but they're saying that there is that possibility for parrots to be able to do this. So I made reference in the very beginning about nature versus nurture. So the idea of, you know, the social learning theory that we learn behaviors through modeling and imitation and also through uh, positive and negative reinforcement. And this study supports the nurture debate because Alex was learning through both operant conditioning because he was being rewarded for giving correct answers and through negative reinforcement for giving incorrect answers by taking the object away. And through social learning, because of the model rival technique, he was observing desired behaviors and he was also imitating when it was his turn how to behave in those cases. So this study strongly supports the nurture debate. I think it could also be argued that it actually strongly supports the nature side of the debate too, because of the limitations and how long it took Alex to learn the things. So there's kind of like two sides to this study with the nature nurture debate yeah i agree it does show that there's uh, there's nurture but i think it also shows that nature actually constrains how much learning and what form of learning can happen as well thank you for that it demonstrates why it's called a debate exactly <laughs> i also think it touches on the issue about how how well can we tell what an animal or in this case a bird can understand you know just because they can't utter it verbally does that mean they don't have that cognitive understanding or is it that they 
lack the means to communicate that to us. So that could be included sort of in the, I guess, both sides again as well. They can learn it, but we can't see they've learned it. There's no way for us to test that at the current time. I think one thing that we haven't necessarily touched on was the nature aspect, the biological aspect. Or I guess maybe Carl talked a little bit about it with the starlings and how it is necessary for a bird call and distinguishing same and different um, in order for survival in nature. I don't know why, but I always think about here in Spain, we have a lot of parrots who were taken from the Valerian Islands and brought to the mainland. They're not naturally from here, but they've sort of escaped. And now we have these green sort of um, parody kind of birds that hang out in our palm trees here. They're very loud and they all conglomerate up in these palm trees and they go, <laughs> they start fighting with each other. And it's just insane when you go to Nerja, which is a place near Malaga here. It is very important to the survival of avian creatures that they understand that the same and different, whether it's in voice call or whether it's the kind of food that they need, the matter difference, um, whether it's something that they need to build a nest with or things like that. There is definitely a strong uh, nature aspect in the same different question, I would say. Is anyone else got parrots living near them? There's a tree very near me that at a certain time of day, all the parrots come from the agricultural areas near Kathmandu and actually fly over to a particular tree near me and a lot of crows as well and I'm not sure there's a type of predatory bird that actually also sleeps in the same tree it's quite interesting to see how they stay together even though they might be a threat to each other so even like recognizing predators is an advantage of having this uh, same different concept as well just because I'm in New Zealand I'm going to give a shout out to one of my favorite New Zealand birds um, it's the only mountain parrot in the world it's called a kea spelled k-e-a not like the car the parrot named by the local um, indigenous Maori people because its call is kia kia it sounds like the name i mean we're humans we like to name things after what they sound like i understand it's fair but it is notorious for being incredibly curious and incredibly cheeky um there was a insurance ad i think that was aired on national television which was these guys turn up to a place to go for a short hike and they drop their car and they go for the short hike and then meanwhile three or four kias come over and start pulling the car apart pull out a bunch of like the wing mirrors and all the seals around the windows and take off the aerial and everything and then the guys come back and go to like drive their car and things fall off and it's quite funny but that does show that incredible curiosity for things that seem to be quite different seem to be novel seem to be new and that definitely emphasizes the reason why Alex did better on the new stuff, I guess. OK, so the psychology being investigated here, it's kind of important to remember we're not looking at whether Alex can talk here. It's very easy to get fixated on all the things Alex can say and do. And we've known for a long time that particularly parrots can mimic human speech. But mimicking speech is not the same as human language. If you think about the way we use language, there's a strong cognitive or thought process that goes behind it. We very rarely just copy what we hear. We do initially when we're learning, when we're very young. And if we've got brothers and sisters, we sometimes walk around repeating everything they say just to annoy them because it's a fun game. But generally, human language is much more complex. And that's really the psychology investigated here is whether some animals or some birds have that capacity for what's referred to as human language, that ability to cognitively process before they speak. And in this study, we're particularly looking at that, that abstract concept of same and different and being able to apply that in different situations. So if you're asked a question about the psychology, focus on the, the human language and the thought process behind it, not whether he can say same or different or matter. 
Okay, so moving on to linking to the assumptions of the learning approach. The learning approach assumptions are awesome and short compared to those biological and cognitive approach ones. There are two of them, like there are two of them for all of them. One is that conditioning helps to explain changes in behavior. And the other is social learning helps to explain changes in behavior. Now, if you get a question around this and linking the Pepperberg study to one of the assumptions of the learning approach, you could actually pick either because both work out quite well. In terms of social learning, to explain those changes in behavior, link it to the model rival approach because they had those two trainers, one acting as a model slash arrival for the um, trainer's attention. And so Alex had to chime in for that. And so he learned what correct responses were through that model rival and what also happened with incorrect responses and what those incorrect responses were. And so he learned through that. Um, we can also link it to the other one, conditioning, um, explaining the changes in behavior. So in this case, the operant conditioning, that we get the positive reward. He gets the objects. He likes the objects. The negative punishment of the objects being taken away for a time when he gets it wrong. And also the positive punishment of the no when he does get it wrong. I wouldn't like somebody yelling in my face, no, generally. And I believe that Alex wouldn't like that either. But again, we've got to be careful about personifying this bird. But loud noises are not appreciated by any animals, I think, let alone humans. Okay, so that's kind of finished going over what the study was all about and what it considers. So now we're on to that nice big 10 mark question, the evaluation of the study. So the first one of our brave mnemonic to remember all the different things we need to think about is generalizability. And again, this one's actually nice and short and quite easy to remember. My students, when I said them last year, okay, what about generalizability? all said, oh, well, it can only be applied to African grey parrots, not any other bird. Well, technically that's true, but actually we're only looking at one African grey parrot. That, as we said earlier, came from a pet shop, so not from a wild or natural environment. And we don't really know, was there something unique about Alex that made him as a bird more able to process and learn these? Really, with only one subject, it's very hard to generalise even to the parrot population. Maybe all African grey parrots can be trained in this way, but looking at this study only, we can't make that generalisation. And we certainly can't generalise to other species as well. Again, linking to the uh, gender issues as well. I mean, we've got a male parrot. We do know that there can be significant differences between bird species based on whether they're a male or a female parrot, certainly in terms of plumage and behaviours and, and so on. And, you know, the ability of a parrot to distinguish between same and different might be quite different between a male and a female parrot. It would be, be interesting to see if anyone has tried to replicate this by training a female parrot. Let's move on to reliability. So this is the second letter in our mnemonic device. And um, generally speaking, the study has implemented specific procedures that were highly standardized through the objects used and the features of the objects described in detail. Therefore, the procedure will be able to be repeated with another parrot in another study should somebody decide to repeat it and will likely obtain same or similar results because of the training procedures described extensively in the study. I think I remember watching a video with my students this last school year where they were actually starting to test another African gray parrot who I believe was also male and it seemed like they were getting similar results, but they were still in the training process as well. I don't remember the name of that African gray parrot. I believe it was Pepperberg, though. 
who was continuing with the study because this was about the time that Alex had passed away. Rest in peace. But in general, the study is reliable. Um, It has a high reliability. It was highly standardized. And Pepperberg worked very hard. I know because she was working on writing grants from different universities to get some funding for her projects with Alex. And so she tried very hard to make sure that everything was explicitly described and able to be repeated should anybody else like to try. Okay, on to our application. I've got a few and I'm super curious to hear what the rest of you um, reckon of these ones. I pulled them from various sources and I would be curious if you got any additions. Firstly, to go super general, super basic, probably not something you particularly want to write about in your exam, but very interesting nonetheless, is that it encourages more humane treatment of birds. Clearly, these birds are really, really smart. We should look after them. We should treat them humanely as if they want to talk with us, want to engage with us, want to interact with us. So very basic, but still important. This whole technique could also be useful to teach animals the correct way to behave in certain environments. So if we've got a wild animal that we're bringing into a zoo because it's been injured so that it can be recuperated and um, then be reintroduced into a wild environment again, or particularly if it can't be reintroduced into the wild, then we need to teach it the right ways to behave so it doesn't freak out the other birds or the other animals that are there. So potentially using the model rival technique for that. So that's thinking about animals and how we can relate it to animals. We can also relate it to humans as well. Um, The model rival technique could be used for teaching children. And we've already kind of mentioned this, that you can have the two trainers. And in fact, it has been done. I've seen some brief research on helping language acquisition in children who have autism. Later on, when we work through our studies, we'll get to Baron Cohen et al. And we'll talk a bit more about autism. But often children who have Asperger's or autism have delayed speech abilities. And so the model rival technique has been used to successfully help children have um, increased language acquisition through that process of showing how to respond and how to say hello and how are you and what are good responses to this and how to interact with other people because of their delays and particularly a lack of theory of mind. And again, we'll circle back to that at some point. Then learning appropriate ways to interact with people by watching other people's interactions and having that positive feedback of this is what it should look like and the negative of don't do this has actually been really helpful. Though a lot of people don't follow down that because it can be expensive having two people helping one child learn how to speak. I mentioned before about Skinner and training of pigeons and one of the early applications of that which could be influenced by this was that they actually used used pigeons in helicopters to spot things in the sea because their vision was better so I think I'm pretty sure it was pigeons that they used to do that so there is an application here to air sea search and rescue operations and training animals for that kind of thing, potentially. A lot of times as teachers, we think about human subjects, uh, students in particular, preparing students to succeed. So Alex was given every opportunity. He was provided with training. He was provided with the vocabulary, with the time to be able to learn how to pronounce mama and all of these things. And I think that there's something to learn or apply with our students when we prepare them for success, when we give them all of the tools and resources that we possibly can before giving them an exam, just thinking about how we're here and we're talking about these things that are going to appear on a Cambridge exam. The four of us are working hard to give our students the best that we can. 
I know that the study is about avian subjects, but perhaps um, there's something to apply here for providing our students with every possibility to be able to learn and get their training and be able to, you know, pronounce or to, you know, if they're an empty cup and we're trying to fill up that cup with our knowledge that they're able to perform better in the end. I wonder what you guys would think about that type of application. I kind of like that idea, but I'm going to take it in a slightly different direction and say that Yes, we need to give them all the tools necessary and the time and the things, but on the time thing, we should only test when it seems like they're ready. A lot of the time in schools, because we've got specific testing times, testing zones, I know that my students at the moment are gearing up towards their final exams in October, November, like they're going to get those exams whether they are ready or not because they've already paid their um, entrance fees and if they don't do it I think there might be some annoyed parents but for some of those kids they might be better to be waiting off until May June next year but because of the fact of the way that the exams are set we can't actually test them necessarily when they're ready same at university things like that gladly in jobs I think it can be a bit more flexible in terms of we won't let you just have a go at this job until we're pretty sure that you can handle this. So sometimes there's just no time for training and good luck, sunshine. Yeah, that's why it should be applied. Like the real world application should be that we should be able to understand that each person is different. Each person has maybe a longer learning curve that they need a little bit more time. And we fit people into grades or year groups and things like that. And perhaps we're pushing people before they're ready and their societal expectations and things like that. I just took this conversation way deeper, I think, than we were intending to. But I, I think also when, when you were saying that, I was thinking, yeah, but sometimes when we put in all these different students together, we're actually giving them models as well so i pairing students together say a, a student that's that's struggling a bit with a student that's actually excelling and using that pairing to kind of like have this model rival kind of approach to the education of some students that need that as well i'd always thought of it as a very i know it's not in the syllabus vygotsky there's a very famous russian psychologist called vygotsky and i always think of it in those terms but now i'm going to actually think of it in pepperberg terms what Carl was saying a moment ago about um, we put students in pairs, it would be very interesting to see if there were two parents learning at the same time, whether that would affect the learning. So one parent that's already trained. So, you know, Alex almost being the model rival and another parent watching, would that, would that parent perhaps learn faster? I'd be really interested in that. But I think I've seen some video footage of when they had some newer, younger African grey parrots. And Alex is apparently like sitting in the background and Pepperberg is telling the story that she's trying to train the new parrot. And then Alex is listening in at the back and then he like yells out the answer. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's not your turn. Be quiet. I was thinking he was all, he was going to go, no. <laughs> and they got it that wrong. would also be funny. <laughs> Okay, I think we'll move on to the validity. Generally, it's pretty positive. I've got lots of things on the positive side for our validity here. So we've talked about the way that the testing procedures are. So the question order and materials selected by another student not connected. The trainer conducting those tests had not trained Alex on the same different task. Um, and so between those two, I've got really limited researcher bias as those demand characteristics from Alex interacting with his regular trainer, particularly on the subject of same and different. So really minimizing that researcher bias, and including with Dr. Pepperberg back-facing Alex and just yelling out what he was saying. 
We've also got the classic of quantitative data, which can be uh, more objective, particularly then we can do comparisons to show that he could or he could not under these abstract concepts, or in this case, that he could. So can also make that comparison between the familiar and unfamiliar objects and could note the fact that Alex could generalize those concepts and generalize that ability to those novel objects as well. In terms of negatives, I've got one thing in my notes and that we've got a lack of ecological validity. It is a lab study after all. It is a controlled situation. And in general, most birds are not subjected to geometric shapes in nature. So they're not going to be looking out and going, oh, that triangle, the three-corner thing is different from the square, the four-corner thing. I don't think so. But generally pretty positive. So if you're thinking of things to put into your 10-mark answers, validity primarily on the positive side I think. I always have a little bit of caution with the ecological validity thing because I think that Pepperberg's not overextending the findings to the usual environment of a parrot or as a measurement of symbolic comprehension it's a very specific type of comprehension a very specific aim in this experiment. You could say, oh no, it's not a valid measure of avian intelligence because it's not done in the wild and it's not the sort of task that a parrot would do usually, but that doesn't invalidate the findings themselves because those constraints are on there, I think. The last letter of grave is ethics. As far as ethics are concerned, I mean, I want to kind of generally talk about ethics as well and ethical guidelines related to animals kind of as an introduction to this. There are some very clear guidelines around the world to do with how animals should be treated when psychologists are working for them. Certainly in the UK, they've got the BPS or British Psychological Society guidelines for psychologists working with animals is in place. And there are laws in different countries as well relating to this. So even if there isn't a psychological society for that country. It might have specific laws to do with how animals can be treated in such places. One of the usual justifications for using animals is that you're doing this research in place of humans. But I don't think that's something that can be used as a justification in this case. So I would steer clear of that as an ethical point in an exam with regards to this. Um, the other points in the BPS guidelines are that if an animal is suffering in any way that you replace it with alternative animals. Uh, sorry, let me clarify. You use an animal that will be less likely to suffer. If there was a different species other than an American, uh, sorry, an African grey parrot, then you use that instead in your study. And that also relates to another guideline which is to do with the species and the strain so you choose the one that's least likely to suffer stress i think there was a question came up about this about using cats and dogs in a in a study maybe it was related to the pepperberg one it was like if you've got a social animal and you're having to have it in isolation for a study then you're using the wrong species in your study to investigate this other things like, is the animal bred in captivity? Does it have a previous experience of experimentation? And is it sentient? Is it aware? And things like this are things that you have to take into account as a psychologist when working with animals. The one thing that's very clearly uh, minimised here is the effect on the quantity of animals. It's a case study. They only use one animal. 
rather than using studying lots of different animals. And that's a consideration if you're going to study animals, is actually minimizing the number that you study. There's a few other things to do with the ethics side of things, minimizing pain and distress. And this is to do with using rewards when you train an animal. If they'd use punishment instead, that would have allowed for criticism of the training techniques. So actually using rewards instead of punishments was a very positive thing. We talked about, I think, earlier about housing and how Alex was kept. And there's two sides to this. Number one, it wasn't the natural environment for an African grey parrot. Really wasn't. I mean, we could really say, oh, it would have been better to release Alex into the wild. Alex, however, was bought from a pet shop. He was raised in a pet shop. So you could say that releasing him into the wild might have actually been a negative thing. However, I do know in Manchester, there is a, a community of parrots flying around in the north of England that somebody actually had some parrots that escaped into the wild and they seem to be doing quite well. One thing I've noted in looking through past papers and Max games and things is that the thing to focus on for housing is that they're not trying to replicate the outside environment. That is clearly something that we can't do. It's more about whether the species prefers to be solo or prefers to be in groups and things like that. And again, we'll circle back to this with Yamamoto. But in this case, African grey parrots are a social species. And he was housed alone in a cage that presumably didn't really let him um, spread his full wingspan. However, he was out of it for eight hours a day. That means he was in it for 16 hours a day. And so on the whole, I think you're better off saying that the housing here is a negative. Of course, they did the very best that they could with whatever's going on there. I mean, one thing I guess that they could have done is taken shifts in terms of who were the lab assistants were and who was actually in the lab. So then he could be out for 12 to 14 hours rather than just mm -hmm. the eight. But for the most part, you do what you got to do. And that's what works the best. Yeah, I, I think as well, just like generally considering the um, the wider environment as well as the housing. I mean, Alex certainly seemed to enjoy the interaction, was in a challenging environment, even though he was a social animal. He had a lot of interaction with another species and he actually lived very long as a parrot. Unfortunately, Alex is dead now, but he did live a long life. So when we look at the ethical guidelines, we've got replacement of animals, we've got species and strain, we've got minimizing the number of animals that are studied, uh, we've got pain stress, minimizing that, we've got the housing. I think that's all of the different points. I think I would just say for students, I'm really glad you went through all the animal ethical guidelines there because I think it's important to remember with the animals, so I think we are talking about a different set of guidelines. We're not going to start writing about how Alex couldn't give informed consent and we need to worry about psychological distress in that sense. And I think as students need to be aware, is this an animal I'm writing about or a human? They are different sets of guidelines. Debriefing might have been a bit difficult. Okay, well, I think that is our study all wrapped up in a nice, neat bow. So that is the Pepperberg study. And my hope is that you will be learning. And if you like, you can take this last little clip and use it for yourself to encourage yourself. No. And good parrot, because that's how they treated Alex. There was one thing I actually wanted to mention at the beginning, and I forgot to do it, and that's, has anyone seen the dog, Bunny, the talking dog? Bunny is a dog that has been trained to utter 
actually using buttons, 80 different words in response thing. And he's a big hit on Twitter. It's a really lovely sheep-a-doodle dog and has really exploded on Twitter and YouTube. And it's kind of related to this. Of course, the dog can't speak, but it can't, can't make any uh, utterances at all, but can actually do it through a machine. It's actually quite fascinating. And that's quite a topical thing at the moment I discovered only last week. So that's it from us. I'm Joe. I'm Leanne. I'm Carl. And I'm Jamie. And that's it for us on PsychoG. Don't forget to also follow us. Come and find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash psychogcaie and find us there come and like us you can ask any questions there as well if you also want to you can send us an email at psychogcaie at gmail.com lovely to see you remember to share this with all of your friends at school pass it around the different schools around the world and we'll see you next time bye